Well, today we're going to be in John chapter 2, and we're going to read through the story of Jesus' first sign. This is one of those stories uh, that if you're like me, it perhaps may feel kind of familiar. You may know the story of Jesus at the wedding at Cana and turning water into wine. And so because it has a level of familiarity, if you're a believer and have spent some time in the New Testament, uh, because of its brevity, it's pretty short. This, I think, can be one of those kind of passages that you can read through quickly and just move to the, the next passage without just settling on it for a bit, asking all the questions, milking it for all it's worth. And I found this week as I was preparing to, to preach on this, I kind of had an idea of where the, uh, the text was going, what the point of it was. I had a few questions in mind I had already kind of worked out in the past at some point. But each time that I read through the text again, each day I read through it again this week, and I found more things popping out of it, more questions, more interesting uh, application points. And so I hope that we can just kind of enjoy that a little bit this morning as one of those kinds of texts. So here's what we want to do. I want to read through the text. We're just going to be verses 1 through 12 today. I'm going to explain the text as best I can. I'm spending some particular time on one of the big questions that comes out of it. And then at the conclusion, I want to offer up four observations uh, coupled with application as well. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn to John chapter 2. Again, we'll be in verses 1 through 12. I'm going to read and pray, and then go back through it. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Let's pray. Father, whether or not this story is a familiar one for my hearers this morning, I pray that you would uh, use uh, this text and the time that we have here, uh, this sermon, Lord, pray that it would be faithful, to be a help. Uh, Lord, please send your Holy Spirit to do a work in our hearts. Uh, We desire to know you more fully. God, there's much to mine out of these stories here, and so we ask that we would get some nuggets to take home with us and We'd be served well by it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. This story here, this event that will be the first of Jesus' miracles in public, takes place on the third day. That's the reference here in the beginning. The previous chapter ended with Jesus arriving in Galilee and calling two more of his disciples, Philip and Nathanael. 
That would make five at this point that have been named. Andrew, John, and Peter, then Philip and Nathaniel. This event takes place on the third day after arriving in Galilee. That's probably what the text is making sense of this uh, statement here. He's invited to a wedding in Cana. The location of this first century town of Cana is disputed. No one knows exactly where it is today. There are four cities today that kind of disputed as that's probably where it was. We know that it was in Galilee and in relatively close proximity to Nazareth where Jesus grew up. And so it was a walking distance for him, somewhere between maybe three to ten miles. Perhaps this was even a wedding of a family friend. The fact that Jesus' mother was already there, the fact that he also gets an invitation to come along with his disciples, probably somebody that's a family friend, maybe even a, a relative for all we know. Now I want to make a quick note here because of our context. We live here in Utah. Uh, There's a Mormon doctrine that's been built around this particular story. Orson Hyde, one of the earlier founders of Mormonism, Joseph F. Smith, uh, will even actually point to this as Jesus' wedding, the day in which he himself is getting married. This is one of the proof texts they'll use to the need for people to get married in order to attain to the Mormon view of exaltation. This is not Jesus' wedding. There are a handful of reasons right here in this text that we can see that this is definitely not his wedding. Uh, There are many more reasons we can say nobody is equally yoked to Jesus. Nobody can be his bride other than the church. He is already married to us. He is already engaged, at least to us. But at least right here, what we can see is that he was also invited. It'd be kind of an odd thing to say. Jesus' mother was at his wedding. And oh, by the way, he was actually invited to attend as well, right? And so, no, this is definitely not Jesus' wedding. He's going to a wedding of somebody else. The bridegroom will even be mentioned, referred to in the story, as you heard there, and it is not Jesus. Maybe the person getting married was even a friend of Mary or a relative of Mary's, being that she was the one there. We don't know exactly whose it was, and it's almost interesting that they they don't even make the mention of who the people were who are getting married, because that is not the point of the story. These are the very first interactions that we see in the Gospel of John between Jesus and his mother, Mary. Kind of interesting to see how this plays out. And he goes not only alone, but with his disciples. This is the very first event that Jesus attends with his entourage with him. Now, in the gospel according to John, very few of the disciples are actually named. They're kind of they're referred to as the twelve. We see the names of some of them, but we don't see the lists as in the synoptic gospels, the other three gospels, that give the full list of all twelve names. It just kind of says there are twelve of them, and we see a few of them named here and there. Uh, because there's no more telling after this text of Jesus later finding more and more disciples to be added to this 12, he may have gone just with the five, he may have had all the 12 or at least more of them. The text doesn't seem to make uh, a remarkable case as to why that's, that's an issue. But he goes to a very common event. He goes to a wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman... What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, you might know that Jewish weddings, both in ancient days and then even in this day in the first century, they would have been week-long festivities. They'd kind of go between two Sabbaths. And it was the responsibility of the groom to foot the bill for the festivities. No wine, she says. This would have been a significant 
issue to run out of wine for this kind of event. Beyond our typical party foul, it was not some minor faux pas. In fact, in certain circumstances in the first century, it may have been possible for the guests to take legal action against the host for inviting them to travel to a feast without providing sufficient wine for the occasion. You may want to implement that again <laughs> if somebody wants <laughs> Just to... But here Jesus has his mother come to him, and she says, there's no wine. Really simple, that's all she says to him. There's no wine. They're out. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, real quick, because we hear the word woman. I actually spoke with a Christian brother once who was really exercised by this. This was one of the most significant things in the New Testament. Why would Jesus say that? My answer was, well, she's a woman. (laughs) That's the first thought that I had. But it is interesting. If you look at the language and what's being said here, it is the word for a woman. But the way that it's used here and the way that we see it used exactly in that same uh, reference in other places, it really has the sense of something reverent. It might be accustomed to the kind of southern drawl, ma'am, kind of language. It was certainly not denigrating in any way. And yet, it is clear that his question that follows, woman, is a bit of a rebuke. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, if you were to study this passage, you were just kind of curious about some of the language there. Well, there's nothing irreverent going on. Mary wants Jesus to do something that he's not yet quite ready to do. And he uses very interesting language. In the Greek, it's very unique. The phrase is spoken. The exact Greek phrase here is spoken five other times in the New Testament, all of them by demons to Jesus. What have you to do with us, Jesus, son of David? You know, that, that kind of thing. And so there's a bit of, whoa, 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 hey, hey, kind, of a, kind of a distancing between the parties. There was, a, there was a at least felt sense of disagreement over something. He wasn't asking, oh, I'm curious what you think this has to do with me. It's a, what, is, what does this have to do with me? But notice he doesn't flatly refuse. He gives her a reason for why he had not intended to act on this. So obviously Jesus, in a human sense, had no obligation to respond here, and yet she intervenes. And the reason that he gives for why this ought not have anything to do with them is, my hour has not yet come. Now again, we can find that phrase all over the New Testament, particularly in John, a handful more places. And we'll show that, we'll see that language referring to Jesus's Hours of suffering and even his crucifixion. I'll just give you one instance in John 7.30, a little bit later in this same book. Jesus, uh, Jesus was, was, uh, was preaching in the temple grounds. Uh, they heard him say that he was sent by the Father. And they get all upset by this. And it says that the people, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Eventually, when Jesus gets to the week of his crucifixion, he'll tell his disciples, my hour has arrived. It has come, right? He'll say that. And so that's what most likely is being said when this happens. Now, if this was the end of the story, if Jesus' mother had said, hey, there's no wine, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Curtain closed, Jesus moves on, they go to Capernaum. If that was it, there'd be no questions involved with this particular event. But that's not what happens We know that Jesus ended up performing a miracle here. He turns the water into wine. We just read through that at the beginning of our time here. Something happens. So he says no, but it appears as though it ends up being a yes. 
The next verse says, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Despite the rebuke, Mary clearly expects him to do something. Now, I, read this, I read this out loud to my, my, uh, my children this week, just kind of read through the story together. One of my kids remarked, as soon as I finished this verse, they said, oh no, now he has to do it. After all, Jesus is the one who wrote the command to obey your parents. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> and I was like, that's right, and don't you forget it. <laughs> Good observation from my little ones. Um, it's hard to imagine what exactly Mary had in mind, right? Because we don't see. She doesn't say, Jesus, without some miracles. Nothing, we don't see that being stated. It's hard to know exactly what she had in mind. I mean, imagine, this is the first of Jesus' signs. The text said that when we got to the end. So Mary had not observed Jesus performing miracles all his life, and then said, now would be a great time to use one of those magic tricks that you're so good at. John Calvin thought that perhaps Mary here had expected for Jesus just to preach or to teach the guests, to kind of pacify the ire that they might have for not having any wine. Calvin's like, no, that's what she's asking. Hey, go go speak to the crowd. This is a chance for you to just show some leadership here and help, help kind of quell the situation. Put everybody back in good spirits. Get the groom out of some trouble, perhaps. But Jesus' statement here, my hour has not yet come, indicates that he's reluctant to expose his miracle-working abilities at this time. Doesn't it sound like that's what he assumed she meant? So what's going on here? What exactly does Jesus mean by saying his hour has not yet come and then turning water into wine? That's really the big question because there is tension in this story. There is tension between Jesus and Mary. And it may may seem simple, it may seem little, but we know he's the sinless son of God. We know that she's a sinful human. And yet, there's this, there's this kind of tension between the two, and he te- seems to go her way. It's a first glance, it seems to look like this. So, there's tension, and someone flinches. Someone moves. Someone defers to the other, yields. We could even say submits to the will of the other. Who is it? You won't be surprised to hear that lots of speculation has arisen over the years from scholars as to exactly what to do with this. The language is a little tricky, but more than the Greek language, it's the idea. What, what, what's going on? It sounds like he's like, I should not do this, but I'll do it just for you. What do we do with this? One suggestion, and perhaps the most common, is that Jesus is saying he was not yet ready to perform public miracles, but because he's pressed by his mother, he changes his mind. So although there was a divinely determined timeline, Jesus pays deference to the needs of his mother and to the friends at the party. And that's his first miracle. It's done at the behest of mortals who express the need. Now, I think that there is a way that could be true without violating any principles of Jesus' perfection, without violating any principles of God's sovereignty, his sovereign will and timeline. But I'm not convinced that that's what's going on here. In that view, Jesus defers to his mother. He doesn't want to do this. She wants him to, and so he complies. That would be that view. Now, another of the more common suggestions by scholars in history is that both Mary and Jesus have something more in mind than what we see the quick look of the text. You see, there are many Old Testament references References to the, to the time at which the Messiah will come 
And when he comes ruling and reigning, uh, many things will happen. There'll be flourishing of the land, the vineyards will overflow, and wine will be a-flowing. That's, that's a regular reference in the Old Testament to the coming of the Messiah. And so many scholars in history have suggested perhaps both Jesus and Mary are thinking about that. And Mary here is basically essentially expecting all the blessings of that future age to be experienced presently. And Jesus is telling her, no, not yet. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not at that time of the Messiah in his rule and reign. So it would, look, it would look something like this. Her saying to him, this, this might be how it would be perceived by Jesus in this, in its fullness. Doesn't the Messiah, Jesus, doesn't the Messiah usher in an age of wine a-flowing? Uh, you're the Messiah. We need wine. Let's do this. And Jesus is like, no, no, you, you misunderstand. Not yet. It's not time for that yet. The reason this view, I think, is so um, profound in history, you see, you see a lot of this in all the commentaries that I read through on this one. It's because neither Jesus nor Mary defers. It's basically Mary misunderstanding something, just like many people misunderstand Old Testament text. Jesus corrects her misunderstanding and then goes about doing the miracle just that he'd always expected he would. Make sense? But perhaps the answer is much simpler than either of these. Perhaps Mary, knowing the true identity of her son as the Messiah, is suggesting that this be the occasion for Jesus to finally burst onto the scene in a large public display of glory and miracle working. Like Moses stepping out of the wilderness into Pharaoh's court, throwing down the staff into a serpent. Or or briefly after, turning water into blood, which many have made significant connection points between these two miracles. Hey, this is your time. You you know how the Messiah is supposed to be revealed? I know it wasn't supposed to be when you were a teenager. But now, now really, this is it, Jesus. This is that public bursting onto the scene. And Jesus says, not yet. Because knowing that it is not yet time to fully reveal who he is to Israel, Jesus here chooses to keep this miracle mostly behind the scenes. And perhaps that's why Mary, rather than going directly to the master of the feast or to the bridegroom or even making a public announcement, listen everybody, my son the Messiah, and then take it away. And then he goes, wine, a flowing, right? But no, instead of that public thing, she turns to the servants. Okay, you listen to him. We'll keep it private-ish. Because by the end of the story, we'll see the master of the feast doesn't know who does this. The bridegroom doesn't know who does it. It seems like the majority of the guests have no idea how this happened. In fact, the bridegroom gets the credit. <laughs> hey, you're a pretty wise bride. Wow, you, I didn't know you were saving the best wine till later. Right? That's what they thought. And who believed at the end of the story? Just the disciples, because they were the ones who knew what happened. Perhaps it's something as simple as that. Whatever Mary expects... She tosses the entire problem onto Jesus, and Mary fades out of the story. She doesn't even show up again in this story. We'll see that later she'll go to Capernaum with them, but that's it. That's, the last, that's her last line. She goes backstage, changes back in the street clothes, and gets ready to go home. And so here's what Jesus does next, verses 6 and 7. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, And they filled them up to the brim. 
Now, there were six stone water jars, jars there. These would have been used for purification rites. That's what it says here about that Jewish uh, tradition. They were made of stone because even though most pots would have been made of earthenware, they've been far cheaper to make that way, far easier to shape, far lighter to carry, uh, it would have had bits of the earthenware in there and it would have not uh, qualified for the level of cleanness needed in the Jewish rites. They needed something that would be much purer than that. The guests who entered into this kind of gathering would have entered through the, the kind of a foyer of this household or the reception hall, and then they would have servants there to wash their hands and their feet as they entered on in. You'll, you'll remember later in the book of John, Jesus will make reference to this uh, when, when uh, a woman comes and starts washing Jesus' feet, and the Pharisees get all indignant about it, and he's like, well, no one washed my feet when I walked in here, and here she's doing it with her tears. Later in John 13, Jesus will get down on his knees and he'll start washing his disciples' feet. And they'll go, no, no, you shouldn't do that. That's the job of the servants. That's right. That's right. The job of the servants. And so that's probably what these are there for. 20 or 30 gallons. If you're visual like me and you're always curious about what this looks like, that'd probably be, depending on the size and shape of them, probably jars a little less than waist tall. That'd be about 20 or 30 gallons, about that, that big. And if, if fully filled with water, depending on the thickness of the stone and such, 300 pounds each. That, that, they're pretty significant, but they're probably stacked, six of them there by the entrance. I'm visual. I imagine three on one side, three on the other. I like symmetry. <laughs> but you get the picture. So, they, so they, kind of, they kind of make their way out of the public eye a little bit here, too, this, they're no longer in the reception hall. They're not standing next to the bridegroom having this discussion. They make their way kind of outside. They're, they're in the foyer. They're, they're in the entrance to the home. Hey, why don't you fill this up for me? Okay. He tells them to fill up the water. They do it. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. A few commentators had made the point here that was kind of interesting. Uh, he doesn't taste test it first to make sure it worked, <laughs> you know, like I just wanted to check on all, it's just kind of cool, it's just, he's, he's so cool, fill it up with water, I'll take it to the master, that he's, don't you want to check first, no, just take it to the master, I got this, just kind of cool, the master of the feast would have been the chief servant, the master of ceremony, some of your translations might say it a little different, uh, uh, the King James Version has it, the governor of the feast, that's a cool title. This would be loosely equivalent to a modern-day head waiter, right? Kind of the, the one in charge of all the other waiters, all the other servants. Kind of was the liaison between uh, the servant staff and uh, those being served. Verses 9 through 10. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. In case there was any question as to what had happened, now we see for sure Jesus turned that water into wine. This is actually the first reference to the miracle actually taking place, right? Just says it real quick there in verse 9, The water now become wine. Where did it happen? Uh, while they were pouring the water into the jar on the way to the pee. No one knows, but he did it. He turned water into wine. And he brings it to the master. The master is shocked by this. And he, he goes, you have kept the good wine until now. 
It was better than what they had had previously. So in case anyone here doesn't drink, there's a difference between good and poor wine. And the people here know the difference. And not only that, he even mentions the custom here. Listen, we kind of expect people start with the good stuff, and when you're, you're not thinking about that so much anymore, you're getting further down the line, then they bring out the cheaper stuff. That's what they're saying. But you, this is better than what you'd offered before. Now, for the record, it's probably highly likely that the bridegroom did, in fact, put the best wine out first. And he's like, oh, yeah, sure, I'm glad, yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course, for you, anything. He gets the credit for it. Verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. First of his signs. Again, the witness of scripture here is that this was the first And the first of what? Not just miracles, not just wonders, not mighty works. All of those things are true about this. But here in John, there's there's seven or eight different times we kind of see this pop up, either specifically mentioned, or it's pretty evident that that's the purpose of this particular miracle. It's called a sign. What does a sign do? Any kind of sign. It points to something. The miracle wasn't about it being the end in and of itself. It was to point to the person and work of Jesus. It was to point to his ministry and his message. That's why the disciples, the the product of this was not, whoa, we've got great wine now. It was, whoa, now we believe in him, right? Because this manifested his glory. And just a little bit, just just a minor bit of revealing and we're going to see over time, repeatedly, it's going to happen, especially in John. Jesus is going to just slowly but surely do bigger and better and greater and more miraculous things. And each time it happens, the disciples are like, oh yeah, he's the Messiah, he does that stuff. Each time they're like, whoa, their mind blown all over again. Because even though they know he's the Messiah, they already knew it before this. Do you remember when Jesus uh, spoke to Nathaniel in the passage just prior to this one? And he does a personal kind of miracle. He knows something about the inner workings and heart of Nathaniel that no one else would have known. And it causes Nathaniel to fall down. And, you are the Messiah. You are the, the King of Israel. You are who they said. You're the Son of God. Right? So they already had some level of belief. But this was a further revealing. Now that belief was built upon this is why our belief as believers as christians we call ourselves believers for this reason we don't just have a singular one-time belief it is true there's a point at which you go from unbelief to belief but your belief grows and swells and, and 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 continues to grow as you get to know him more and more and you'll be shocked and amazed and surprised and that new shock and awe and amazed and surprised is not proof of your lack of faith prior it's an all over again whoa and so His disciples believed in him at this manifestation of his glory. He put his godness on display even a little bit more. I said this before, but while this miracle was done in a public setting, it doesn't seem to be observed by the majority of the guests. I would suspect word would eventually get out. This becomes known as the second of his great, or first of his great signs in Cana. He'll do another one later. 
And so sounds like at least eventually people, the word starts to spread. Oh, oh, that wasn't the bridegroom. And then he's like, oh, I never said it was, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. But it seems like the audience was still pretty limited at first. At the very least, we, the way John records, this is not Jesus bursting out of the scene. I will come to the rescue here. I'll do this. He could have, but he didn't. Seems like only the disciples and the servants knew what had happened. So the point of this miracle was not widespread acknowledgement yet, but to confirm for his new disciples who he was. This sign, then, was not for the greatest number of people he could reach in that moment, but this sign was chiefly designed for his new disciples. You may remember that later in John and even in other of the synoptic gospels, we'll see Jesus performing certain miracles, and he tells people, don't tell anyone about that yet, <laughs> right? Why? Why? Because every one of his miracles was not designed to be the big public display. He had other things in mind. He had a plan on how it was going to roll out. Now, one more thing to note is the disciples began to follow Jesus prior to seeing any of these miracles. They had already committed to follow him. They had already followed in his wake. They came with him to this wedding. They already heard John the Baptist say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They followed him back up to Galilee. They're already in the process of following Jesus. And it's after they started following him, they got to experience the miracles that he performed. And notice how different this is from later stories in John and other tellings of the future people who will interact with him, who first see him in the moment of a miracle and then refuse to follow from those who follow without any miracles and then grow in their belief for him. You see that? You and I ought to be so slow to demand, to demand. Jesus, if I'm going to follow you, you need to answer a few of my prayers. You need to do some of these things first. No, just follow him. Then you, you will get to experience some of his mighty works. This sign is to show them who he really is. And the, the conclusion of the story is in verse 12. And this, after this, he went down to Capernaum. Down, because Cana would have been up in the hills. They go down to Capernaum, which is right on the edge of the Sea of Galilee, with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. I want to kind of spend the rest of our time on four takeaways. That's four observations uh, with application. Four observations with application. You can see here. You can, I can find a hundred of them here, but I just want to zoom in on just four uh, uh, for you to meditate on with me this morning. First observation. Jesus was invited to the wedding. I don't think that's the purpose of this being in the text. I just want to pause because we don't see many of these. We don't see lots of weddings that Jesus attends. We only get this one. And so I'm going, to, I'm going to milk it for a little bit. I remember Laura and I once had a chance to go to a neighbor's wedding. We lived in a, a, a third-story condo back in, uh, in Chicago when we were there. And uh, our next-door neighbors on the other side of the paper-thin wall. We could just talk through the wall to each other. Uh, they, to, a pair got married. She was Catholic. He was Jewish. And so they wanted to kind of do a Catholic-Jewish wedding. That's kind of how they wanted to do it. And so in order to not offend anybody, the Catholic priest and the Jewish rabbi that co-officiated decided to mention God, mention the Bible, but never mention Jesus. This is a really weird 
service he went to. Sat there, heard them continue to go and read through text, read through things, and just not mention Jesus. It's really weird, really odd. Quite honest, it was really awful. I said to Laura as we walked out of that wedding, I'll never forget it. I probably brought it up before here because it's such, it was such an odd and off-putting experience that Jesus was the only one not welcome at that wedding. Like anyone else is allowed but Jesus. Jesus was invited to this wedding in Cana. You know, marriage exists to illustrate for us intimately the nature of the relationship between Christ and his church. I said this in our marriage sermon series a couple months ago, but I'll repeat it again here. I do not believe, I do not believe that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are watching history play out and like, hey, look at that marriage thing they do. Hey, I got an idea. Let's say, let's use that as the illustration for the relationship between Christ and church. Then they'll understand. I don't believe that. I think the order was the opposite. I think we must convey to our creatures the intimate relationship between Christ and church. We'll give them marriage. Marriage exists to illustrate the relationship between Christ and his church. Even in Christian weddings, our earthly traditions can take center stage if we're not careful. Even before I was a pastor... I was a wedding singer. I uh, played piano and guitar and did songs and weddings and a whole bunch of really corny songs and some that were okay. And I've got a whole bunch of my repertoire now for having been a part of that in some way. Well, whether it was that long before I was in ministry and as a pastor or if it was um, the many weddings that I've had the privilege of officiating since then, I've been a part of, I've been a, part of a lot of wedding planning. And it's been my assessment that even Christian weddings today have become overrun with Easter bunnies. Do you know what I mean by Easter bunnies? I mean meaningless earthly traditions that are more likely to distract from what matters than to magnify what matters. But the kind of thing where you're like, hey, why do you do that? No idea. But everyone does it. Oh, does that, does that like aid in us understanding how important the relationship between bride and bridegroom are? No, it might actually hurt that. But everybody does it, you know, that kind of thinking. We often give far more attention to earthly traditions than to the guest of honor, Christ. I want you to listen to this, especially unmarried folks, whether you're a teenager or whether you're in your 20s or 30s or you're older. If you think that in your future you may be planning a wedding, consider earthly weddings oftentimes get all this mixed up. Earthly weddings, this is one of my hobby horses. I'm not going to go too far on this because I know I could just... Lose a lot of friends. Earthly weddings are all about the glory of the bride. But from a heavenly perspective, the ultimate wedding is all about the glory of the groom. I'm not saying that earthly weddings should magnify the groom. But it is odd, the inversion that we do in America. Everybody stands and turns as the bride walks in. No, no, no. The end of the story in the Bible is we all stand and celebrate and praise as the groom comes in. You get it? So, So again, I'm not saying that earthly weddings should have that switch. But there's something about the way we do this. That we go, some, some, something's off. We have a kind of a ritualistic kind of way in which we organize things because that's the way we always done it. My grandma did that, my mother did that, and I'll do that. You know, it's just that's the way it goes. Now, here's my quick out for someone who does one reason I think this happens is experience. Most people only get to experience planning one wedding. 
Okay? If, you, if you planned 100 weddings, by the time you got to the 100th, you probably would have refined it a bit and made some changes and done that. But you really get one shot, really, to plan a wedding. Maybe, maybe a couple more once your kids get old enough and you're involved in some measure there. But if you were to plan a Bible study and at the end of it realize that it kind of bombed, you'd have a thousand more chances to make it more God-honoring, Christ-exalting, helpful for the people, right? But you only get one chance with a wedding, typically. So that's my, that's my free pass for people who do this. But I think that it would be far more likely for us, if we thought from a biblical perspective, the way we do weddings today would just be exploded to bits if we started from scratch and said, what if we just made this look as much like we thought could be Christ-glorifying and honoring as possible? Because I'd far prefer for Christ to be the guest of honor seated at the front than out in the foyer with the servants in the water jars. All weddings are ultimately, all, 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 all weddings, non-believing, atheist weddings, Buddhist weddings, Hindu weddings, all weddings are ultimately all about Jesus. And they'll say something about who he is. It's unavoidable. The application then, be sure that Jesus is not only invited, but is the guest of honor and the chief influence over every wedding you ever have a part in planning. I acknowledge that's not the point of this text, but I had a chance to get it in. All right, number two, the servants obeyed Jesus. Just cool. Just one of those things that I honestly, I, did, I never remembered that being something in the text. Look at this with me. Verse five, what does is, what is, uh, Jesus' mother do? After he says, you know, it's not, my, my hour has not yet come. And she, she turns to the servants and says, do what he tells you. I suspect Mary couldn't possibly know at that time that this was the best advice a person could possibly give another person. Do whatever Jesus tells you. Probably the truest words about Jesus that she ever spoke. If we want... Christ's blessings, we need more wine. We must offer our obedience. Now, in the goodness and the grace of God, I do not believe it's at all an equal exchange. I do not believe the Lord sits there grumpily waiting until you do some good works for me, and then I'll give you some good blessings. I don't think that's the way it works out. I think he overflows graciousness upon us. But if we want Christ's blessings, we must expect our obedience. We all want these kind of blessings, don't we? Even if it's not wine at the wedding, there are things that we run into, and it's just kind of funny. Funny maybe even might be the kind of the right word for it, because at this particular event, it's kind of an innocuous thing, even if it was more socially significant in that day. I'm betting these two would have survived it. And yet, Jesus shows up and provides We all want these kinds of blessings. We could have the list in our lives of the things we'd want, but are we willing to obey Christ too? That's the the question I'd ask here with this particular verse five. Would we be willing to obey as well? What if you're wanting Jesus to heal your marriage? And what if it got to a point that you realized you, you need him to show up with a miracle? This is this is going to this is going to take something significant. We're out of wine. We, 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 have, we have exhausted all the possibilities. It's not like, well, I saved some just in case. No, this is, we're in trouble now. 
This is, I've tried everything I know to do at the extent of my wisdom to heal my marriage. I don't, I don't know what more to do. Jesus, if you don't show up, I don't know what's going to happen. You cry out to him. What do you do? You cry out to him. You plead with him. You plead with him to do a work in your heart and in your spouse's heart that you on your own have been unable to do. We've not been able to solve this. You're going to have to do something that only you can do. Then, after you cried out to him, you must then quiet your heart and listen and say, now what should I do? How can I obey? You've heard my cry, Lord. Now it's my turn to hear your command. You tell me what to do. Then, do exactly what he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Well, what if it seems silly? What if it seems superfluous? What if it seems like meaningless? Like, well, that's, that's, no, Jesus, we don't need water. We have plenty of water. Wine, wine is what we need. That's often the hardest part, isn't it? It might feel peculiar, peculiar, maybe unusual. Maybe what the Lord presses upon your heart through counsel, through reading the word, just in your own private quiet time, you're getting this gut sense of something you're supposed to do. It seems futile. Well, okay, Lord, I get what you're telling me. That won't solve this. Would you do it anyway? Or would you do like these servants do and fill up the jars? And did you, did you notice the word? How did they fill up the jars? To the brim. It's cool the Holy Spirit-inspired details that the Lord chooses to preserve throughout history for our reading. It could have just said, the servants filled the jars. No, no, it said, did you see that verse? To the brim. Not reluctant obedience, not halfway obedience, not bare minimum obedience to the brim. And you and I know if the water was turned to wine and they had filled the jars halfway, I don't want to take five more trips to the cistern. Those are 300 pounds. You're not, they're not carrying them to, a, to some. They're not bringing a hose in. They're, they're carrying other pitchers of water and filling them. That's what they're doing. Could have been like, that's, that's good enough. We have plenty of water. I don't think he heard us. If they filled those things halfway, how much wine would they have? Way less. How glad must they then be when, the, when it's filled to the brim and it turns to wine and they go, whoa. It's a good thing I didn't shirk. It's a good thing I didn't just halfway. It's a good thing we went to the top. Right? Full obedience. When you pray for God's blessing, get ready to do whatever he tells you. Not reluctantly, not hesitantly, not halfway to the extents. That's what you do. So the application, be like these servants. Be like those servants. Do whatever Jesus tells you and do it to the brim. Number three, God cares about our enjoyment. God cares about our enjoyment. I 
found this reference from the uh, 12th century rabbi uh, in, in one of the commentaries I read through. It was a Jewish rabbi named Maimonides, and he uh, made this point that he noticed in this writing about Jesus. He, he observed that when Moses did his miracles in the wilderness, for example, they were each done out of necessity. If we don't have water, we're going to die of thirst. Water from a rock. If we don't get food, we're going to die of hunger. Manna on the ground. If we're not rescued from these enemies, we're all going to be obliterated today. Destroyed the Amalekites. Always done out of necessity. But here, Jesus performs this first of his miracles simply for the pleasure of his people. That's, this is his first miracle. Do you remember what happens in John 11 when he gets towards the end of all of his miracle performing? Right before he goes to the final week of his life and eventually to the cross. Do you remember he raises a man from the dead who'd been dead four days? He starts with, their party's not going to be as good. And he ends with, this man will remain dead if I don't act, right? Jesus cares about our gladness, about our satisfaction, about our pleasure. And and I can say that with a high degree of confidence, because that's not just here. This isn't the one text in the Bible that talks about our delight, our pleasure, what we desire being satisfied. Whether or not we have joy or cheerfulness, this is not the only place. That is a repeated theme throughout the entirety of the Scriptures. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. Every good and perfect gift comes from Him. Thankfulness, gladness, receive all those things in that way. Even your suffering consider a joy. You find the treasure of the kingdom of God, you sell everything else, and in great joy, go and buy the field, right? The whole Bible's filled with this stuff. It's not as though Christians are the miserable ones who choose to, I will honor you, Lord, with my misery. No! Lord, I honor you with my joy even in this circumstance. Right. The Lord cares about our delight. What's heaven? Perfect pleasure and delight for eternity. Jesus is the supreme joy giver. The bystanders, consider this one, the bystanders, the people who just happen to be around, those who just showed up to the wedding, they benefit from Jesus' blessings here without even ever knowing it. He has so much good, so much gift, so much graciousness to pour out on people that people are receiving it not even knowing Look at this amazing wine. Thanks, bridegroom. They were the collateral beneficiaries of his grace. In other words, a potential social disaster turned into the talk of the town. The groom gets the credit, at least at first. They don't even know Jesus has anything to do with it. They're just enjoying the moment. Jesus is a joy giver and a joy producer. How often do you suppose that this is the case? that we and others benefit from God's good grace and mercy without even knowing about it. 
don't even know. I suspect more than we can count. Completely unaware of his blessings, and yet we receive him. Have you ever, have you ever in your life kind of done a, a, a retroactive recounting of an event that took place earlier in your life, and you realize, oh, the Lord was in that? Like late, later you go, oh, man, he helped me dodge that bullet. Didn't realize that. But so many of those kind of moments then how many do we miss? Here's the application. If, if, the, if, the, if the observation is God cares about our enjoyment, this was, this was purely for the enjoyment of the people and a sign for his disciples. And he couldn't have done that, that sign any different way. Hey, the party, they're out of wine. Let me give you all a special something. Just miracle for them. It would have satisfied the same thing. But nope, the whole crowd, without even knowing, it gets blessed. Anyway, application, Trust that he has your joy, your delight in mind, and always be thankful. Be grateful all the time. Fourth, Jesus gives us the best. This is, this is closely related to the, to the earlier one. He cares about our delight, but, but not, not just a little, the best. The wine was unexpectedly good, more than it needed to be. Ask yourself this question. Would this have been any less of a miracle if the wine was on par with what had already come out? It would still have been a miracle. Water into pretty good wine is the same as water into amazing wine, essentially. How many of you can make water into pretty good wine? Right? You see what I'm saying? If they were like, whoa, you keep having this pretty good wine flowing. But he didn't do that. He gave them the best wine of the feast. I don't know this for sure. The text doesn't say it. I suspect it's the best wine that's ever been made in the history of the world. That's what I would guess. I'm I'm prone to that thinking. (laughs) See these gifts from the Lord. But it was good. Better than they had yet, yet had. Best wine of the feast. You know, during our marriage series a few uh, months, months ago, we read through Genesis 1, 2, and 3, big portions of those. We saw that the lie that Satan told Eve in the Garden of Eden only worked because she became convinced that God was withholding something that would have been good for her. That was the trick of Satan, wasn't it? God is keeping something good for you. He's keeping it from you. So go take it. In a sense, it was the first. The Lord helps those who help themselves. Go. He's keeping wisdom from you. He's keeping knowledge of good and evil from you. And you and I both know that tricky serpent had part truth, part lie, right? They would know. They would know some of those things. Their eyes would be open to the knowledge of good and evil. And it would be awful. And you and I get sick. And we bleed and we suffer and we hurt and we die because of it. God knew what was better. But Eve was tricked. Remember, remember, Adam was not deceived. She was deceived. What was the deception? She thought God was keeping something best, better than she had, that she should have had from her. She fell for that lie. Don't fall for it. God has our delight in mind. Our obedience to him is the best. 
that we can have in this day. Don't believe that lie, that God gets glory from your misery. We, we think wrongly about that too often. It's not, it's not just be miserable and he'll be happy that you're sad. No, rejoice in him. Yes, yes, we endure, and that is to his glory. But do not believe that he does not want what's best for you. You know, I've had angry people on the street when I'm sharing the gospel, and they're like, why are you out here? Why are you, why, why are you standing on this corner? Why are you saying your stuff to all of us here? I've had people do this at our, our dining, dining room table, my wife and I. And I found it a bit disarming when, I, when, I, when I've responded something like this, because I want the greatest possible joy for you. Now, often people don't have ears to hear that in the moment. But that's it. Why are you trying to get me to reject the faith I grew up with and follow your, your interpretation of Jesus? Why, why, would you want, why would you want to destroy all of that in my life and dare to stand out here and proclaim that I'm following lies? Why would you dare do that? Because you're missing out. I want everlasting joy. I want the greatest possible joy you can ever experience. And you're not going to get it going that way. You see? God has our delight in mind. Matthew Henry said this in his commentary on this exact passage. This is a cool line. Christ is often better than his word, but never worse. When he promises something, when he sets his heart and his mind to do something, the result is always better than we had ever imagined. Whatever you think heaven is going to be like, it'll be better. It'll be better. If you've ever entertained that thought, and I'm going to especially speak to kids, because kids, if you're younger in here, listen up carefully. I remember when I was your age, when I was 6, 7, 8, 10, 15, even in my early 20s, and being kind of disappointed in my mind about the image of heaven. I remember thinking this way, like, singing Amazing Grace for forever? Like, I like that song. <laughs> That's a long time. And, and then I finally transitioned from, in my, as I began to mature and the Lord was doing work on my heart and began teaching me who he really was, I finally got to a point where I just said, listen, it sounds boring, I, just, I guess I have to trust you. And for the record, that was better. It was better to say, I'm going to leave that up to you and just trust you. But guys, whatever your image of heaven is, if it's not perfect enjoyment, if it doesn't make you like tear up or shout with excitement or get shaky out of excitement, you don't have it right. Because what he has to offer us as the supreme joy giver is better than we can ever imagine. Better. If you're not a believer today, this is why we cry out to you with this. We want the greatest possible joy for you. Your sins that you have committed and do commit every day, have set you against God as an enemy. And they are not only putting you in that status between God, causing a separation between you and Him, they are robbing you of joy. And whatever you think that that is giving you a kind of pleasure today, you are missing out on something significantly better, both in this age and the one to come. And we're not okay with that. We want for you to be able to have joy in suffering today and in the pleasures that will come in this life, and even more than can be told in the future. 
And how is it that you can do it? By repenting of those foolish sins that have set, set us as enemies of God, by turning from those things and treasuring Him above all else, and looking to Jesus, who is God's perfect Son, going to the cross, bearing the punishment for those sins you must repent of, and by believing in Him alone, you can have eternal life. That's what we want for you. If you're not a believer, a believer, I say that with air quotes and, and, and really mean it, like believer as the text says in that word, believe on Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's what we want. And not because we get anything out of it other than, other than a shared joy with you. And as Christ goes to the grave and death the grave could not hold him. He raises again on the third day, defeating death once and for all, being the final of his earthly signs, showing he was who he said that he was. You and I can have eternal life. And what, what must you do? Do you have to go make your own water into wine? No, you rely on the great miracle worker, 100%. And that the miracle of your salvation is on him alone, not on what you provided, not on what you did. And whether you're not yet a believer today or you are one, fill that that vat, that jar to the brim. Give not just a little bit of your life. Hey, Lord, I'm going to keep some of these things back here and this, this, uh, these drawers down here. I'll give, you, I'll give you parts. No, 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 no. Give everything to him. That's what we want for you. This miracle here was a sign. It was designed to point to something far greater than the miracle itself. It was designed to, to point to Jesus Because better than wine, he gave us himself. Paul even refers to Jesus in Ephesians chapter 3 as the one who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. I'm going to pray to close our sermon time and open our time for communion. It It is no coincidence that in communion we drink of the fruit of the vine Christians have drank grape juice or wine all the way back to these days of Jesus Christ and it's again a reference not only to his shed blood for us in the new covenant he bled for us on the cross and the bread that we take is a representation of the the broken body of Christ for us but it's a reminder even back to his first miracle but Jesus gives us far better than whatever we're going to drink or eat out of these little cups you're about to have. He actually gave himself. If you're a believer here this morning, you're welcome to come forward and partake. The only thing we ask is, as 1 Corinthians 11 says, discern the body, test your heart to see if you are at peace with the Lord this morning and your brothers and sisters. And if that's you, you can come forward and grab the double stack cups, bring them back to your seat. We'll sing together. Just one quick line, and then we're going to partake of those elements uh, all as a community. Let me pray, and you can come down, grab the elements, and bring them back to your seat. Father, this morning, we acknowledge our love and gratitude for you. We know that we've not been grateful for one iota of the amazing, generous gifts you've given to us. Help us to be a more thankful, more grateful people. Father, help us to be obedient servants that fill the jug to the brim with our obedience. Father, help us to, to be those who expect with the blessings that you offer, that we want to be those who, who offer obedience to you. Father, help us 
wedding planning ever in our future to, to invite you to be the guest of honor and the chief decision maker and influencer over everything we do there. Lord, thank you for giving us your very best. Help us to trust you more in that. Thank you for the gift of communion that reminds us of Christ's broken body and shed blood for us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.